Jeroboam decides, you know, it's probably not a good idea if all of our people and our ten tribes, that's the northern kingdom, if we go to Jerusalem and continue to worship. So he creates his own system of worship. He creates his own gods, his own idols. And he puts one in Dan and one in Bethel. And so what we have then is an inauguration service, the, the kickoff service for the worship of the golden calf in, or bull in Bethel. Well, like we said last time, you can see Jeroboam, is, he's up on the altar. He's about to have the beginning of this inauguration service. All the people are there. And, and then suddenly there's a prophet who comes from the southern tribes. And it doesn't tell us his name. It just says he's a man of God. And he prophesies against what's happening. And he gives a future prophecy, which is amazing. He said, there will become a king by the name of Josiah from the line of David. And he will take the bones of these priests and he will offer them on this very offer or altar to desecrate it so that it's no good. Now, he then refuses to stay and participate in the festival, and he's on his way home, and a lying prophet comes to him and says, hey, an angel spoke to me, come eat with me. And he says, oh, okay, that sounds good. So he leaves and goes. And when we read this, and God takes his life because of judgment, and when we read this, we say, wait a second, is that just? Would God really do that? And that's where we are. So let's read 1 Kings 13, and I'm going to read from 11 to around 19. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. The man of God said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to them, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Stop there. Let's pray for our time. Father, I just ask that you teach us more about your glory, who you are, your greatness. Father, that you would sanctify us, do a work of grace in our life, encourage us. Let us see the gospel in this text, the work of Christ for us, and teach us right now. Let your spirit work mightily in our hearts and our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. You know, the greatest challenge to the church, and I I would say to your faith, does not come from kings and presidents, but it, it comes from false prophets amongst us. 
That's the reason Jesus says in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Like the man that I heard on the radio asking for money one time when I was driving across the state, and he said, hey, remember, I can pray for you or I can pray against you. That was true. During the 1950 baseball season, the St. Louis Cardinals were playing Brooklyn. And the, the manager was a man by the name of Miller Huggins at that time, and he was on third base, and they had a, the score was tied. They had a runner on third and 90 feet away from coming home. It was the seventh inning. There was a young pitcher, a rookie, by the name of Ed Appleton. And so Huggins, standing on the third base, he yelled over at Ed Appleton, the young pitcher, and he said, hey, bub, let me see that ball. And Ed Appleton goes, oh, oh okay. And he slings it to him. And the wise manager just let it go, and it rolled out of bounds, and his runner went home and scored the winning run. <laughs> now, you might ask, okay, well, why did Ed Appleton do that? Maybe he was young, right? Maybe it was the grisly old voice of the manager that carried some sort of authority that convinced him of this is legitimate, this is what I need to do here. But it cost him the game. In 1 Kings 13, we see something real similar to that happening. The man of God is on his way home from Bethel, and he's approached by an old grizzly prophet. And all he says basically is, I'm a prophet. And the young prophet followed him like a sheep to the slaughter, turning away from obeying the word of God that had been given to him. And so I say to you, the greatest challenge to the church, to your faith, to my faith, in America and around the world, it doesn't come from who wins the elections or political parties. It comes from false prophets or false teachers who tell us that they are speaking the Word of God, that I'm, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, I'm a bishop, I'm a priest, who in every way except their message fit the mold of someone that we should listen to in the church. And it, it, it only grows. So, so here in chapter 13, we see one lying prophet, and in chapter 18, there are hundreds. And so it is with those type movements in the evangelical church. So what's the proof? Okay, Rusty, I hear lots of people on the radio. I see lots of books. What, what's the proof? How do I know a false prophet, a false teacher? And that's what we're going to dive into. The main idea this morning, though, is... The greatest challenge to the church comes from false prophets who tell you they're speaking the Word of God. Okay, let's start with this. News from the festival. Look there in your Bible at verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man had done that day in Bethel. And so here's some things that I want you to see in this text. From the very beginning of the story, the, the author draws a distinction, doesn't it? The young prophet is called a man of God who speaks the word of God. This old grizzly man is called just an old prophet from Bethel. An old prophet from Bethel. He's not a prophet of God, it says. He's not a prophet who speaks the word of God, he says. And so we ask, well, who is he? Who, who is this old prophet from Bethel? So when we dig down a little bit, I want to throw a few other things at you. 2 Kings 23, it's referring to him. It calls him 
a prophet of Samaria, means he is like all the other prophets of Samaria. And you say, well, what, what's a prophet of Samaria? What does that mean? Jeremiah 23. Let me read this. Jeremiah 23, 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. Okay, let me put those things together. This man is the first we see of those prophets, quote-unquote, of Samaria who made it their duty to lead God's people astray. And we see one here, and we see it multiplied to hundreds by chapter 18, and so that Jeremiah even picks up on it, and he says, prophets of Samaria lead us astray. Now that, that's one side. Now notice, there he is, and he, he's at home, and his children come. His boys, it says his sons came and told him. And so we see a little bit more about his character here. His sons, where were they? They were at Jeroboam's altars. They were participating in the worship of the golden bulls. And then they came home. They told their father everything the young prophet spoke, that the altar would fall. Ultimately, King Josiah would destroy this altar desecrate it. Now, the old prophet who does not hear from God, but his sons, he gets on his donkey and he takes off after them. Verse 18, look in your Bibles with me. He's got a plan. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Listen, False prophets and teachers have always been the worst of enemies to real prophets and real teachers. They destroy the work of God with lies. So the old prophet finds the young man of God under a terebinth tree on the way home, and he lies to him. And he says an angel spoke to him, which did not happen. Therefore, come back and eat and drink in my house. Now, here we see a repeated pattern in Scripture. False prophets, teachers, lying spirits, trying to convince God's people to not trust or obey His Word. Where does that start? <laughs> well, it starts in the beginning. It starts with Satan in the garden seeking to convince Adam and Eve to disobey God. There. By eating with a lie. And the false prophet does the same here. You know, several years ago, Jennifer and I, we were visiting um, uh, some friends of ours who are charismatic and in the word of faith movement. And we visited their house, and there was a lady there, and they said, Rusty, Jennifer, come, come on, we want you to pray with her. She's had a really hard time. So I said, hey, t tell me your story. What's going on? And this is what she said to us. She said, my husband had cancer. It was said to be terminal cancer. And so we took him to Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn prayed for him and said, he is healed. And I told him, you're healed. You believe it. You don't go back to a doctor. But he didn't believe Jesus. And so he went back to the doctor. 
And it wasn't long until he died from his cancer. You see, he didn't have enough faith, and therefore he died. And she told her children that, and she told everybody who would listen that story. Now, I say again, the greatest challenge to the church in America and around the world it doesn't come from governments or political parties or elections, but of false prophets who tell us they are speaking the Word of God to us. And what makes spiritual deception so appealing is it looks so right, so that often we never actually consider the messages we are hearing. We just live our lives buying the newest Christian books on the market, believing the garbage Christianity that our culture tries to push and sell our way. And you say, well, it all looks so good. It feels so right. It seems so innocent. So just follow your hearts and feelings, and the result is you lose the gospel. And behind all that is a lie that we have been deceived into believing. Now, there's a progression. This lady didn't, didn't get to that point where she's telling her children, the reason your father died is because he didn't have enough faith. There's a progression. starts with this, listening, listening. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. My friends, you cannot expose yourself to things that are not true biblically and come out unscathed. Listening is the first step towards belief and action. So I want to ask you, what is spiritually influencing you? What are you listening to spiritually? That's first. Let's go to the second step. We don't just listen, we dwell on it. So after we hear something about us, about God, about our world, we dwell on it. We daydream about it. How great it would be. Or maybe I really am like that. Maybe that's really how people think of me. Or maybe God is really like that. So I want to ask you, what are you meditating on? What are the things that fill your mind? Third, we go from listening, dwelling, trusting. This is when we begin to receive something that is not truth about God, about myself, about our world as true. That also means we decide not to believe what Jesus says is true, and we take it as untruth. Listening, meditating, trusting, last, we act on it. Beliefs always produce behavior. Behavior never comes in a vacuum. It's birthed in beliefs. So the man of God, he listened to the lie, he dwelt on it, he trusted it, and he acted on it. That brings us to our third thing, the man of God's sin. Look in verse 16 in your Bibles with me. Verse 16. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by, notice, the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return, notice, by the way that you came. Verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house, and drank water. Okay, two things. Notice first, by the word. And second, by the way. By the word. This young prophet, he understood very clearly what God had told him. He says it twice. He repeats it. 
He was to prophesy against their sin in Bethel and the festival that's happening and then leave. Not to eat with them. Why? Well, to eat at the festival would be to partake of the worship. To rejoice in replacing God and His covenant with a golden bull and the new priests. And it probably meant eating what had been offered in the temple. So it didn't matter if the invitation was from the king or from the false prophet. He knew he was to preach, he was to leave, he had God's word. And the question then is, would he obey it? By the word. Second is, by the way. Notice there. You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way you came. When you hear this and you're an Old Testament Jew at the time, it's a super common phrase. The nation of Israel were commanded repeatedly, walk by the way. In Deuteronomy, walk by the way. All through their wilderness travels, walk by the way. But the way is not a path. It's a life of obedience. And every time that they turn from it to their own way, bad things have happened. So the man of God, told by God, stay on the way. But by disobeying God, just like the entire history of Israel, it leads to destruction, death, and burial in a foreign land. Now, why did God take his life? Rusty, it, it seems harsh. It seems cruel. And I want to give you some thoughts there, and then we'll finish. Let's say you go and visit Cambodia. And there you see something, experience something that's absolutely horrible. In a small village, you witness a girl and a group of men are around her and they're treating her in the worst possible way. And there's a police officer and he's standing, twirling his baton and doing nothing. And you say to him, aren't you going to stop this evil? He replies with indifference and says, it is not good, it is not bad, It is what it is. I see no reason to stop it. And carries on his way. Listen. When someone is passive towards evil and sin, you would never call them good. You would never say, man, what a great police officer he is. He should run for mayor. To be good and love justice is to hate sin and evil. It's both. They work together. You don't have one without the other. So we want Hitler and Stalin punished because we're made in the image of God who is good and we naturally we hate sin. God is good and therefore He loves justice and He hates sin. Now, most people don't actually object to God's anger towards sin. They say, yeah, Hitler, he gets what he deserves. But what we object to is God's Anger towards my sin and sin that we can relate to. See, we are happy for the sins of Hitler's life to be judged, but we object to the sin of my life being punished. So an atheist young lady wrote on Facebook this week, in case you wonder where I stand on white supremacy, the only good Nazi, white supremacist, or white nationalist is a dead one. And what she's saying is, if your sin is white supremacy, 
You deserve judgment. You deserve death and no mercy. My question is to her, what about your sin? (laughs) What does that deserve? What do you deserve from God? And in her mind, the answer is nothing. And in God's word for the wages of sin is death. My friends, the truth is, God alone can judge the real sin and the appropriate punishment for it. And so for a teacher and a prophet, we see James 3.1. Listen, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a word of unrighteousness. Come back to our story. We see here a prophet, a teacher, who prophesies publicly in front of a whole nation and then publicly says, God told me not to eat in fellowship with you in front of a whole nation. And then he disobeyed God's word. He left God's way and does fellowship with them. Could that not have been the small fire that set the forest ablaze? You can imagine everyone saying, well, why should we listen to him? He doesn't even keep his own words. How do we know that what he just spoke to us in the message of grace is true? And so the same God who just withered the king's hand for speaking against his word because he wanted the message of the word to sink into those people takes the life of the prophet who acts against his own word. In the end, we must let God be God and trust he alone will objectively do what is right in all things, even though sometimes we don't have the full picture. How do we think and live this? Well, the greatest challenge to the church in America and around the world, it does not come from governments or political parties or elections, but false teachers who tell us they are speaking the Word of God to us, preachers, pastors, bishops, priests, who in every way, except their message, fit the mold of someone that we should listen to in the church. And so how do you know a false prophet? How do you know a lying teacher? God tells us. Deuteronomy 13.5. Listen to this. But that prophet shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. My friends, a false prophet, a lying teacher, an ungodly pastor, you can judge because they will encourage disobedience to the Word of God. Their teaching will not obey. It will lead you outside of the ways of God and outside of the words of God every single time. I want to close with this. The story ends really in a remarkable way. (laughs) The old prophet says to his children, listen, when I die, I want you to take my bones and I want you to bury them, verse 31, 32, in the grave, the tomb of the man of God. Because I know his prophecy will come true. And one day they were going to get all the priest's bones and burn them on the altar. And they will not get my bones and burn them on the altar if I am with him. Well, 
Fast forward 300 years, King Josiah does come, and he does that very thing. He takes all the priest's bones, and then he comes to one tomb, and there they see the inscription, the man of God, and he passes over the judgment, which is a judgment of fire for the priest. My friends, that's exactly how Jesus saves you. You see, one day there will be a judgment, and it will be a judgment of fire. And the Father will see the Son in His work, the man of God. And all those who are joined to Him by faith will pass by that judgment of fire. Why? Not because you're good, not because you're righteous, but because you are joined to Jesus Christ. You are in Him by faith. His death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. And that is the gospel. And we see little bits of it here in 1 Kings 13. Father, just praise You. Thank You um, for the gospel message. It's not my righteousness that will save me. It's not my religious actions that will save me. Those priests had lots of religious actions. It's the fact that I am buried with Christ by faith. I am raised with Christ in newness of life. I am joined to Him. His life is what saves me. Thank You, Father, for sending a man of God who spoke to us the Word and the way, how to live, and yet He joins us. God, we thank You so much that one day there will be a final judgment and it will be a fiery judgment. And praise You, God, that all those who are joined to Christ will be accepted and passed by for He took our judgment upon the cross. And we just praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper.